Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's great to see you today. Take your Bible and turn to John 17, and we'll get there in just a few moments. Uh, we, you know, with the inauguration of our new president, uh, there's a lot of talk about unity. And uh, President Biden put it this way. He said, without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury, no progress, only exhausting outrage, no nation, only a state of chaos. He said, this is our historic moment of crisis and challenge, and unity is the path forward. And we must meet this moment as the United States of America. Unity is the path forward. If you go Google that phrase, it gets like 50 million results. So yeah, there's a lot of buzz about unity today. Uh, many of the few who were able to attend the inauguration ceremony wore the color purple uh, to symbolize the unity of blue and red. And my prayer is that there could be some kind of unity that will be possible in the days ahead. But maybe a better prayer is just to pray for peace between two sides who will never see eye to eye on how the country should be governed. But the only way that unity is possible in our nation is by elevating a kind of unity that is higher, that is much higher than who a person voted for in November. I mean, since its inception, our country has held as one of its highest values that we are one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And I know that phrase wasn't around in 1776, but it encapsulates a lot of what's in our founding documents. And so through the years, this commonly held value has allowed people to hold uh, political differences, even heated political differences, without demonizing the people who believe differently. In his farewell address, President Trump stated, no late nation can long survive that loses faith in its own values, histories, and heroes, for these are the very sources of our unity and our vitality. Now, regardless of what you think about President Trump, I do think he's right in saying our values are the source of our unity. You see, unity doesn't depend on everybody seeing eye to eye on everything. On the contrary, there can be great unity by embracing uh, diversity. But with all the purple-fashioned unity rhetoric, I hear lots of other things being said that do not allow for liberty and justice for all. Instead, it's liberty and justice only for those who agree with our side. And that's very disturbing, if you ask me. And so time will tell if all this talk about unity will actually manifest itself in some kind of tangible actions or if it was all just a part of a, of a feel-good moment. We'll see. We'll see. But I, I'm not half as concerned about the unity in the country as I am about the unity in the church. The sad thing, but no, it's worse than that. I mean, it's the, it's the disastrous thing that's happened in the church during these days, and I mean churches across our country, I'm not singling out Fellowship Greenville, but the disastrous thing that's happened in our churches is that the political divide in the country has come into the church. And for many Christians, their personal politics and their hope that this personality or that personality will save us 
has made it almost impossible for them uh, to see anyone who disagrees with them as fellow believers. And brothers and sisters, these things should not and must not be. Now here's the deal. Just like unity in our nation has to be anchored in values that are higher than our political perspectives, so also the church's unity has to be anchored in values and beliefs that are higher than our political perspectives. Or better, our unity has to be anchored in the gospel. And if the gospel is not the be-all and end-all of our common unity, our community, then there's no hope for the church because the church has no voice if we have no unity. The church has no vitality if we have uh, no unity. The church has no validity if we have no unity. And the church has no mission apart from unity. And that's true, but to be honest, whenever I think about the unity that we are called to as brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes I wonder if that unity can actually become real. I mean, if you look back at the history of the church, you see division after division. There was the division between the Eastern and the Western church in the 11th century, and the division of the Protestant Reformation and the division from Rome in the 16th century, and the radical reformation of the Anabaptist movement within Protestantism in the 16th and 17th century, the breaking of the Wesleys with the Anglican church, uh, which led to the, uh, the Methodist church coming to, into existence in the 18th century. And I could go on and on and on, division after division in the church. So the question is, how can the, the church attain to the unity to which we are called with such a checkered past and with the current political climate being what it is? Well, of course, there's practical things that we can do, like dealing with our own pride and, and loving uh, learning to love one another despite our differences. There are lots of uh, practical things uh, that we have to put into practice, but there's one essential activity that we have to put into practice if we want greater unity in the church, and that's what I'm going to talk about today because you see the division in the church created by our current political climate intersects directly with something Jesus taught, or better, something Jesus modeled for us. In fact, the only time the word unity is used in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is when Jesus is doing this one essential activity, and that essential activity is prayer. Now, we are studying through the Gospel of John, and we've come to John 17, a chapter that's commonly referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is the real Lord's Prayer right here. And today, I want us to view the topic of unity through the lens of prayer. And so here's my big idea. My big idea is that prayer is the pathway to unity. The prayer is the pathway to unity. And the flip side is without prayer, we cannot experience unity in the church. So hold that thought. First, we're going to walk through the passage. And then we're going to come back to this big idea at the end of the message. And we're gonna start by reading verses 20 to 23. I'm gonna put them on the screen and I'm gonna read them from the New Living Translation because of its simplicity and its clarity. Jesus is praying to his Father and he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. 
I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 20, Jesus tells us exactly who he's praying for. He says, I'm praying not only for these, meaning the 11 disciples who were with him. I'm, he says, I'm, I'm not only praying for these disciples of mine here right now, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message, for all who will ever come to faith in me through their message. And, and that's every single Christian who ever put their faith in Christ uh, through the preaching of the apostles or then the preaching of the disciples of the apostles and the disciples of the disciples and all through the generations ultimately coming down to us, all who have ever put their faith in Jesus, either through the preaching of the apostles or the written down word of the apostles that we hold in our hand as the New Testament. The point is, in verses 20 to 23, Jesus is praying for you and me. He's praying for all of us. He's praying for Fellowship Greenville, and he's praying specifically for what he most wants for us. Now think about that. Do you want to know what Jesus most wants for you? Jesus is being betrayed. He knows that. Soon he'll be arrested, falsely accused, and unfairly tried. He knows that. By tomorrow afternoon, he'll be crucified on a Roman cross. He knows that. And after this prayer, things are going to happen really, really quick. And he knows that. So literally, before all hell breaks loose, Jesus prays for you and me and us. He's praying for what he considers to be most important. And so what is that? Well, in the last two messages, I've highlighted the things that he's been praying for. Um, I said that Jesus uh, is praying, number one, for our holiness, that we would live into the fact that God has set us apart as his own special people. That's what holiness means. To be holy is to be set apart. And we have been set apart by God as his own special people. So he prays for holiness and he prays, number two, for the Father to protect us from the evil one, to protect us from the evil that's in the world. And tied to the need for protection is our mission. He prays for God to protect us from the evil one as we, number three, carry forward the mission of Jesus in our world. But he isn't praying for our physical protection. He's praying for something he considers more important than our physical protection, and here it is. He's praying like this. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they all may be one. This is his most important prayer request. Here's what he wants protected more than anything else as we carry his mission forward in a hostile world, that we might all be one. This is some, unity is what ties our, our holiness and our mission together. It has to be uh, protected at all cost. 
And so let me show you this. Look at verse 21 one more time. He's saying, Father, this is my prayer for all my future disciples. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. And then down in 23, he says, I in them and you in me so that they may all be perfectly one, or as the NIV puts it, that they may be brought to complete unity. So what Jesus wants most for his disciples then and now, what he wants most for you and me and us right here and now, what he wants most for Fellowship Greenville is for us to be one, unified, perfectly one. So knowing that hostility Growing hostility is coming. He prays for our unity. Now, you might think the most important prayer request is for people to be saved or for the church to be revived or for our worship services to be full or for our offering boxes to be overflowing or for our songs to be moving or any number of things, but Jesus doesn't pray for any of those things. He prays that we would be one. One more time, verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 23, that they may all be perfectly one. But what exactly does that mean? What does that mean? Now, some people have read these verses and they have said that unity means that all Christians should be in the same church, that all churches should merge into one church. And there should not be all these denominations. We should just be one big denomination. And in the 20th century, there was for many years a major movement on the part of mainline denominational churches to merge and become one church. And uh, there's nothing wrong with churches merging. In fact, it can be a very good thing when like-minded churches merge, but an ecumenical merger of all churches cannot be what Jesus is talking about here. Why not? Because the cry for ecumenical unity disregards what's at the heart of our unity, and that is a commitment to the truth of who Jesus is, why he came, and why faith in Christ alone is the door into life with God. And if you read this chapter carefully and study it like it should be studied, you see that the, the unity that Jesus is praying for is not something that stands on its own. It's a part of a larger whole. In other words, unity is not a doctrine that stands in isolation. And that's one of the problems with how a lot of us tend to handle scripture. We, we tend to see the truth of God as if it were a, a bullet point list of unrelated propositions instead of seeing one truth as a part of a larger whole, a text belonging to a larger context. And the unity that Jesus talks about here is inseparably linked to verse 17 where he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And the word Jesus refers to in verse 17 is connected to the word, the truth, the message. In verse 20, it's the, the word which we have believed, which again is now what we read in our New Testament. So for the church of Jesus, there's no unity apart from truth. No unity except a unity that is founded on and centered in what is commonly referred to as the apostles' doctrine. You see, it's not enough to say, as long as someone calls themselves a Christian, then that's all that matters. 
No, no, no. We, we can't say, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter how you live or how you behave. All you need to do is call yourself a Christian, and that just means we're brothers and sisters in Christ. No, Jesus, when Jesus says sanctify them in truth, he's asking the Father to set us, his church, apart from the corrupting lies of the world and the evil that's in the world, and he's asking the Father to set us apart in the truth of the gospel. And as people set apart in the truth of the gospel, we have a common bond that unites us. So first of all, we need to be clear as to what this unity really is. And, and, and if it's not ecumenical organizational unity, then what is it? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. In this passage, every time Jesus mentions unity, he does so by connecting unity to some aspect of who he is. Verse 11, look back at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. All right, then he goes on, verse 20. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word that they may all be one. Look at this that the world may believe you sent me, that I have come from you. Then he repeats himself in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And he's not content with that. Verse 23, he says it again. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you love me. You see, there's a direct connection between the unity that Jesus is praying for the church and the truth of who Jesus is. So again, there is no unity apart from agreement on the essential truths about Jesus that were preached by the apostles and written down for us in scripture. And according to these verses, we have to believe and agree together that Jesus was God in the flesh. Notice it, that he and the Father are one, verse 11, verse 22, and that he came from the Father, verse 21, 23, and that after he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, he returned to the Father in heaven, and his great desire for us, verse 24, of on all who put their faith in him will be that we will one day be where he is. We will be with him where he is and see his heavenly glory. So some kind of ecumenical organizational unity, some kind of merger between all denominations cannot be what Jesus is talking about here. So, okay, so what is he talking about? Well, he says, May they all be one. When he says, may they all be one, he means red and yellow, black and white. They are all one in his sight. He means rich and poor and middle income Christians are all one. He means American, African, Asian, Hispanic, Jewish, Syrian Christians are all one. He means young and old and middle-aged Christians are all one. You see, Christianity was the first multi-ethnic religion, and I can't go into all of it now, but the early church was the only place on the planet where Jews and Gentiles and men and women and rich and poor 
and educated and uneducated and tax collectors and those from whom taxes were collected and slaves and free, all these groups that never associated with one another, they came together and they enjoyed being with one another in God's new community. In the 21st century, that means that Republicans and Democrats are all one. It means independence. The independents and the indecisive are all one. It means the libertarians and the librarians are all one. And the haves and the have-nots and the black and brown and beige and white, married, single, old, young. In other words, it means all of us. All of us. Now, uh, the disturbing thing to me is our modern culture now tells these groups that you can't associate with one another. You can't discuss important matters with one another because it's not safe to listen to somebody who has a different opinion. That's insane. That we're told, our modern culture says that these groups cannot love each other. But you see, the early church was full of people with different ethnicities, different races, different socioeconomic classes, and it cut across all racial and class barriers in a way that the world has never seen. And it was the diamond of the gospel message in the setting of this multi-everything unity that turned the world upside down. To a great degree, the early church exploded in growth because of this counter-cultural expression of unity and loving community. And if the church ever hopes to have any impact in our world today, it's only gonna happen as all of these different groups come together in the name of Jesus in unity. And that means we, must, we have to become very intentional about ensuring that there is unity in the church because it's what Jesus prayed for and because it doesn't come naturally, does it? I mean, let's be honest. We like being around people we like and people who are like us. We like being around people who look like us and believe like us and talk like us. We like to be around people who hold the same political views in us, and we have a low tolerance for anyone who has a political view that's 180 degrees opposite for us. Now, you know what the number one obstacle to unity in the church today is? It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. It's me thinking I'm right and you are so wrong. Because, and because I'm right and you're wrong, I have the right to speak about you and to speak to you in harsh, unloving, condescending ways, if that's what it takes. To, and that's what's happening in social media. And it's ungodly. Mark it down. Self-righteousness is the biggest hindrance to unity. It's always been. It's always been. In the days of the early church, it was self-righteous Christians from a Jewish background who struggled to be one, with, one church with uncouth Gentiles that didn't know God's law. We see it in the messed up church in Corinth where people were divided over personalities. Well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulus. I'm of Peter. Each group thinking that they had cornered the market on truth. And Jesus is like, listen up church, my church is gonna be diverse. My church is gonna be international. My church is gonna be made up of many different languages and many different colors and many different cultures. And that's what makes 
the church beautiful and attractive. Now, I guess that most of you have had the experience of meeting someone new, someone you never met before, and, and they're a Christian, and maybe they are from another state, or maybe they're from another country, and, but when you meet them and then you start to talk with them, you automatically feel this really tight bond with that person, and, and you're surprised that it actually feels like you've known this person all your life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, and, 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 and because it, the reason is because you and that person hold the gospel as your highest value, then the gospel is the source of your unity. So my first point is this. Our unity rests in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel message preached by the apostles and passed down to us through their preaching and what we now have recorded for us in the New Testament. Our unity rests in the gospel. Now, do you know why Jesus prayed for oneness? This is the shocker. Why did he pray for oneness? Well, the reason he prayed for oneness really hasn't, hasn't gotten anything to do with us. He prayed for oneness because of what he wants to do through us. You see, there can be a lack of unity in the church and the church can survive. The church can sing songs and people can show up and leave and come back and forth. But if there's a lack of unity in the church, the will of God will not be accomplished in that church. Look at what Jesus says. He, he, talks, he says, basically, my paraphrase, he's saying, look, the reason I want them to be one is so that when the world, not the people in the church, but people outside the church, people outside the faith, people who, when they drive by outside, they roll their eyes at the church, so that when they see unity in diversity in my church, that they might come to the conclusion Father, that you sent me, meaning that they will begin to see me in a whole new light. And Jesus is telling us by that, he's saying, unity is not an add-on. It is not a nicety that if you have some degree of unity, that's great, but if you don't, that's okay. No, 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 he's saying unity is mission critical. He's saying unity is mission critical. And the way the world is gonna sit up and take notice of this beautiful, diverse thing that we call the church is when the church works together and is unified even though we have differences and disagreements over secondary matters. Matters, whether they be political or theological or methodological. Jesus is saying that unity is the pathway forward. Unity is what will eventually get the attention of the Roman Empire. It's what will eventually get the attention of the pagan world because they never saw anything like it. And for that reason, you can't sacrifice unity for anything. Now, you know what Jesus was doing here when he's praying? He's asking his heavenly father to come along later and nudge that generation of Christians and the next generation of Christians and the next and the next and the next, all the way down to us, he was asking his heavenly father to nudge us toward what he just commanded his disciples to do a few hours earlier when he was having his last Passover meal with his disciples. Because in that conversation with his disciples, Jesus said, look, I'm about 
to leave. Peter, shh, shh, you're not going, okay? You're not going. Just sit still. I'm about to leave, and here's the one thing I don't want you to forget. I'm giving you a new command. I'm giving you a new command, and I'm going to establish a new covenant. And this new command is going to supersede everything that's come before. All the 613 uh, laws in the Old Testament, this command is going to supersede them all. And it's very simple. You don't even have to write this down. I, I, I believe you can remember this. And, the, and my new command is that you love one another. To which they would have said, well, that's not really new. Moses told us that. And he goes, and Jesus would have said, I'm not through. You're cutting me off. Let me finish. My command, the new command is to love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another just as I have loved you. And again, he didn't give us this new command for our sake. It's not about us. He says, the reason I want you to love each other, it's not, not so you get along. No, it's because in this way, the world will know that you are my disciples. He's saying, by my kind of unique, sacrificial, agape love for you, even though, even though you're not like each other, I love each one of you, different as you are, by my kind of unique sacrificial love for each of you, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love each other the way that I love you. So now, John 17, after Jesus gives them this new command to love one another the way that he loves us, now he prays and he asks the Father, Holy Father, please help them get this right. As the gospel, Holy Father, as the gospel spreads from Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, Please help them to love each other as different as they're going to be. So in John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples as different as they're going to be. He's praying that they will be able to live out this new love command and be brought to complete unity in a new community made up of his very diverse followers. One more time, I want you to see this in the scripture. I'm not making this up. Verse 21, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world will know that you sent me. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may be brought to complete unity so the world may know that you sent me and, love, and you love them like you love me. Now, he's certainly not talking about political unity here. He's talking about unity of purpose. The unity of a worldview where we see each other the way that Jesus sees each of us. And then when the world sees us, they see Jesus. Look at it. He says, so that. Here it is again. It's not about you. It's not about us. Not about me. So that the world will know with certainty that you sent me and you've loved them as you love me. He's praying, Heavenly Father, you and I know everything rests in their unity. Not, not, not around their politics, not around their culture, not around their social economic class, not around their language, not, not, around, not how they do baptism, not how they do communion, and not how they sing or when they sing or what time they meet. Heavenly Father, we know that there are these core values of oneness that they must be unified around. And if they are unified around those things, then people will take notice. 
And here's the cool thing. After the resurrection of Jesus, it happened. After Jesus rose from the dead, the apostles went into the streets of Jerusalem with one purpose, and that purpose was to make disciples of all people. And they went out with one message, and that message was that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, and King Jesus has come to reverse the order of things. He's come to bring the kingdom of God to earth, and unlike any other king, he gave his life for us. He died for us to open a door back into relationship with God. And they went into the streets with one single command, and that command was to love each other the way Jesus loved them. Unity around one purpose, one message, one command. Unity around one purpose to make disciples of all nations and all people groups. Uh, 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 Unity around one message, the gospel of Jesus. Unity around one command that they love each other the way Jesus loved them. So here's my second point. Our unity results in the world being able to see who Jesus really is. Our unity results in the world being able to see who Jesus really is. Uh, First, our unity rests in the gospel of Jesus. Second, our unity results in the world being able to see who Jesus really is. Now listen, the church wins or loses based on how we treat each other and how we love each other. And in a very real sense, the world wins or loses based on how we treat each other and how we love each other. And, and, and that's why, listen, we must never allow anything or anyone to divide us because according to Jesus, there's way too much at stake. You see, it was Christianity. It was these unique upside down values of Christianity that shaped Western civilization. And, 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 and almost no one disagrees with that. Even staunch atheists will agree that it was the message of Christianity that shaped Western civilization. It wasn't American politics, or it wasn't Republicans or Democrats, it was Christianity that shaped Western civilization. It was the teaching of Jesus, not our political parties, that laid the groundwork for our modern sense of justice and fairness and the dignity of every single individual. And as a church, we, we have, and as a country, we haven't, we haven't gotten that right all the time, and we still get it wrong sometimes. But, but our hope is not in the government doing for us what God can only do. No, our hope is in the message and teaching of Jesus because it was Jesus and it was the church, the early church that introduced these foundational values in ways in, in these ways from the very beginning. So why would we opt for something less than that now? I mean, why in the world would we allow ourselves to be divided over lesser things? As followers of Jesus, as followers of an eternal king, why would we allow ourselves to be divided over political systems and political leaders and political platforms that are passing away? Why would we allow ourselves to be divided over lesser 
kings. Why would, we, why would we allow a political view to divide us from the actual living, breathing you that Jesus died for, the you beside you, the you that lives next door to you, the you that works in the office next to you, or worst of all, the you that's related to you. Come on, why would we not fight for and struggle for and sacrifice for unity, the unity that our Savior King Jesus prayed for, the unity that literally turned the pagan world upside down in the early days? I mean, do you want this for Fellowship Greenville? Do you want unity to be the characteristic mark of this church? Do you want the unity that Jesus prayed would exist among us to be so evident that the community sits up and takes notice? If so, we have to pray to that end. We have to pray to that end. Remember the big idea I mentioned at the beginning of this message. This is what Jesus modeled for us. That prayer is the pathway to unity. That prayer is a pathway to unity. And we pray about all kinds of things, but we seldom, if ever, pray about what Jesus prays about here. Right? I mean, when was the last time that you prayed for unity in the church? Now, I'll be honest with you, before I started studying John 17, it wasn't on my radar, but I've been tremendously convicted by all this. Jesus prayed for our unity, and we need to pray like Jesus prayed. So, I want to do something a little different this morning. I, I want us to take some time to pray for the things that Jesus prayed for us here. And so I've carved out a little extra space here at the end of the service to do just that. Now, the way this is going to work is I'm going to lead you through three short segments of prayer over the next several minutes. And there's going to be scripture on the screen. And uh, we're going to have some uh, background music to break up the silence a little bit. But I want us to draw near to the Lord in prayer. And I'm gonna read scripture and I'm gonna suggest some things to pray for and then I'm gonna leave space for you to pray silently in your heart to God using your own words. Okay, make sense? Okay, two people, that's good. All right, the rest of you will catch on. So let's pray. This is what Jesus prayed for in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So I want you to take some time in the quietness of your heart, and I just want you to thank God for how much he loves you. Thank God that Jesus loved you so much that you were on his heart, and he prayed for you. the night before he was crucified. And thank God for what Jesus did for you on the cross.
Thank him that he died to make his prayer for our unity real and lasting. Jesus went on to pray that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one even as we are one. So pray specifically that God would make us one. Maybe you need to lament the divisiveness of our age Maybe you need to confess that you haven't pursued unity with brothers and sisters in Christ who have different political views than you. Maybe you've spoken about them or to them in unloving ways. Confess your sins of disunity and ask God to make us one. Then Jesus went on to pray, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you've loved them even as you loved me. Let's pray that our mission as a church would be upheld by our unity. Pray that our unity would put Jesus on display in our families, with our friends and coworkers, and with the people who are sitting beside you and behind you and in front of you. Because Jesus says unity is our most powerful witness. And I'll close with this. Here's a short, simple prayer I picked up from Andy Stanley. The prayer is this. Heavenly Father, make us one so we can influence many. Heavenly Father, make us one so we can influence many. Pray that with me out loud together. It's on the screen. Heavenly Father, Make us one so we can influence many. One more time. Heavenly Father, make us one so we can influence many. Once more. Heavenly Father, 
Make us one so we can influence many. Holy Father, we come before you as your church and we ask that you would bring us to a complete, mature unity in Christ. May we be unified in one purpose to make disciples of all peoples. May we be unified around one message, the great good news of the gospel of Jesus. And may we be unified by one command that we would love each other in the same way you love us, as different as we are, warts and all. Heavenly Father, make us one so we can influence many. And we ask these things in the amazing name of Jesus. Amen.